0: Introduction of Hans of Iceland. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sonja. Hans of Iceland by Victor Hugo. Translated by Abby Langdon Alger. Introduction Hans of Iceland is the work of a young man, a very young man. As we read it, we see clearly that the 18-year-old boy who wrote Hands of Iceland during a fever fit in 1821 had no experience of men or things, no experience of ideas, and that he was striving to divine all this. Every intellectual effort, be it drama, poem or romance, must contain three ingredients, what the author has felt, what he has observed, and what he has divined. In a romance particularly, if it is to be a good one, There must be plenty of feeling and plenty of observation, and those things which are divined must be derived logically, simply, and with no solution of continuity, from those things which are observed and felt. If we apply this law to hands of Iceland, we shall readily grasp the chief defect of the book. There is but one thing felt in hands of Iceland, the young man's love, but one thing observed, the young girl's love. All the rest is a matter of divination, that is of invention. For youth, having neither facts nor experience, nor models behind it, can only divine by means of its imagination. Hands of Iceland, therefore, admitting that it deserves classification, is hardly more than a fanciful romance. When a man's prime is past, when his head is bowed, when he feels compelled to write something more than strange stories to frighten old women and children, when all the rough edges of youth are worn away by the friction of life, He realizes that every invention, every creation, every artistic divination must be based upon study, observation, meditation, science, measure, comparison, serious reflection, attentive and constant imitation of nature, conscientious self-criticism, and the inspiration evolved from these new conditions, far from losing anything, gains broader influence and greater strength. The poet then realizes his true aim. All the vague reverie of his earlier years is crystallized, as it were, and converted into thought. This second period of life is usually that of an artist's greatest works. Still young and yet mature, this is the precious phase, the intermediate and culminating point, the warm and radiant hour of noon, the moment when there is the least possible shade and the most light. There are supreme artists who maintain this height all their lives, despite declining years. These are the sovereign geniuses shakespeare and michael angelo left the impress of youth upon some of their works the traces of age on none to return to the story of which a new edition is now to be published such as it is with its abrupt and breathless action its characters all of a piece its barbarous and bungling mannerisms its supercilious and awkward form its undisguised moods of reverie its varied use thrown together haphazard with no thought of pleasing the eye Its crude, harsh and shocking style, utterly destitute of skill or shading, with the countless excesses of every kind committed almost unwittingly throughout, this book represents with tolerable accuracy the period of life at which it was written, and the particular condition of the soul, the imagination and the heart of a youth in love for the first time, when the commonplace and ordinary obstacles of life are converted into imposing and poetic impediments, when his head is full of heroic fancies which glorify him in his own estimation, when he is already a man in two or three directions and still a child in a score of others, when he has read Ducré du Minil at eleven years of age, Auguste La Fontaine at thirteen, Shakespeare at sixteen, a strange and rapid scale which leads abruptly in the matter of literary taste from the silly to the sentimental, from the sentimental to the sublime. We give this book back to the world in 1833 as it was written in 1821, because we feel that the work, ingenuous if nothing else, gives a tolerably faithful picture of the age that produced it. Moreover, the author, small as may be his place in literature, having undergone the common fate of every writer, great or small, and seen his first works exalted at the expense of the latest, and having heard it declared that he was far from having fulfilled the promise of his youth, deems it his duty, not to oppose to a criticism, perhaps wise and just, objections which might seem suspicious from his lips, but to reprint his first works simply and literally as he wrote them, that his readers may decide, so far as he is concerned, whether it be a step forward or backward that divides hands of Iceland from Notre-Dame de Paris. Paris, May, 1833. End of introduction